Man, Barry, there is nothing like a confidence killer than asking kids, hey, you know what we've been studying lately? Ephesians. And they're all going, huh? So that kill, oh man, I'll tell you what. But then they gave it back to me. Those kids are awesome. Thank you, parents, for letting them come up here and uh, enjoy that message. And appreciate you, Barry, for, for giving us that. I don't know if you've ever experienced this. I'm going to assume most of us have. But it's that moment when you've been dealing with the same word over and over and over again. Maybe you've been trying to spell it or say it or you're reading it. And the same word, as you look at it over and over again, it looks, it begins to look very, very strange or wrong. For some reason in my strange mind, I can still remember the very first time that happened to me. It was in sixth grade and I was writing out a two or three sentence answer to an essay question. And for some reason, the very common word use, U-S-E, I could not think of. Every time I knew I needed to write down U-S-E, use, I would write down Y-O-U-S, use, as in use guys, (laughs) right? I couldn't get it out of my head. Now, I don't know if you've ever had that realization or where a word has become strange or this weird phenomenon. There's actually a scientific term for that. It's called semantic satiation. And semantic satiation is the phenomenon of when something that is very familiar, your brain all of a sudden interprets it as unfamiliar. And this week, you're going to see this, and it actually came up in the kids' devo. I had that I had that phenomenon happen with the word stand. You'll see why here in a little bit. But as I thought about the word stand, it became very strange to me. I had a semantic satiation. And the word stand is used so many times in the English language, I began to have this weird moment with it where it started to look misspelled. For example, we use the word stand a lot. And humor me for a second. Don't just stand there. Stand up on your own two feet. If you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. Well, I can't stand just sitting around. Well, you need to stand up for yourself. Stand up, stand up for Jesus. I won't stand in your way if you do. Stand by for news. If he uses one more time, if he uses stand in a sentence one more time, I don't think I can stand it. Well, stand by with me for just one more minute. You know, some of us could probably stand a shower. (laughs) Stand by your man. (laughs) What I said before still stands. You know, somebody ought to stand trial for trying to start a sermon this way. (laughs) Well, at least I know where you stand. I think it's about time I take my outline from this stand and get this sermon started. (laughs) We are at the end of Ephesians, Paul's aha letter, his apocalypse. 
And he's going to close it out with this incredible recap, but is also at the same time, it's the most familiar part of the passage of the letter of Ephesians we probably are all familiar with and know about. It's Ephesians chapter 6, 10 through 20, the armor of God. But what he's going to focus on most of all in this passage is where we stand. What we do when we take our stand in this apocalypse. If you'll remember back, we've been in this book now, this letter for 12 weeks. What we've been talking about is the aha, the apocalypse, this tearing back of the curtain. That's all that word means. It does not mean end of the world. It means a revealing. And the revealing we have seen is that for Paul, we now stand in a new reality. The now but not yet of the kingdom. If you remember our Venn diagram and lights up here, this place of awaiting the fully realized kingdom, but yet living now under King Jesus. This letter has been that realization. It for us has been hopefully a discovery for those that belong to Jesus as we live in the now and the not yet, that this life is what Paul calls the new humanity, is a call to do things totally different, to live under a completely new reality. In short, and I was asked this week to write it down by somebody, what would you write it down if you could write down Ephesians in a sentence? Well, I couldn't give them one but I could give you three or four short ones. It is King Jesus has come. King Jesus has won. King Jesus is reigning. King Jesus will return. Everything can now change. And I believe that is an apocalypse. I believe it's good news. And I believe when we learn this morning where to stand, it can change our lives. So I'm excited to get to the end of this. It's been great studying this with y'all. But as we get into it today, grab your Bible. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 6 as we wrap up Paul's letter. Paul, giving his most popular section, the last section of the letter, gives us a challenge of where to stand. So notice that word as it comes up. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and keep on praying for all the Lord's people. 
Pray also for me, Paul says, that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, that open secret, the aha, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. What an amazing way to wrap up a letter. We live in a world where it's no surprise and nobody is going to go, wow, Jake, I didn't know that. But we live in a world of ever-increasing blame, stereotyping, hate, division, and lack of nuance. It seems that everybody, and I probably should include ourselves in this, has something that offends them. We have all chosen molehills that are worth dying on. We used to choose mountains. Now we choose molehills, political ideologies, masks or no masks. Is Die Hard really a Christmas movie? (laughs) See? (laughs) Should you eat peeps at Easter? No. (laughs) We all have these things that we argue about. There is so much silly, sometimes serious, and even the things that are causing people to turn to violence that people are dividing over. I, for one, try to lean into these two types of sentiments when it comes to protest. I don't know what we're yelling about. (laughs) Or this one, this one's actually worth yelling about. Stop standing up when the plane lands. You can't get off yet. (laughs) Drives me nuts, (laughs) right? Now, those are funny, but what Paul is leaning into is something that Winston Churchill said. He gave us some wisdom here that I think is tied to, maybe he didn't know it, but it's tied to what Paul is saying. He said, courage is what it takes to stand up and speak. Yeah, there's not much wisdom in that. There's wisdom in what he closed the sentence with. Courage is also what it takes to sit down and listen. Or in other words, Churchill's right because what Paul is teaching this morning is the best wisdom is to know what to stand for and when to actually take a stand. And Paul, in this final closing section of Ephesians, says, because of all this amazing truth of Jesus and the apocalypse, that he has made the two one, and you are now living in a new humanity, let me show you how and what for and when to take a stand. And the first thing he tells us, I'm going to give you four this morning really quickly, is he says, you got to stand together. You're a bundle of toothpicks, Barry. (laughs) You are better together. Remember, we said this weeks ago, and I think we reminded us of it. This is a y'all passage. There is not one singular you, individual you, in the book of Ephesians. So you shouldn't read it as it's talking to me. It is, but it's talking to us. We stand Together, it's a y'all thing. He says, as the body of Christ, he says, so that y'all can take your stand against the devil. 
so that y'all stand your ground. Y'all together put on the armor of God. Now y'all with me on this, I have to admit that it is still difficult because I grew up reading this passage for 30 something plus years where I didn't know it was y'all and every time I read about the armor of God, I want to think about me putting it on. That it's my responsibility alone. That it's an individual charge. That is not what the text says. The text says as a church, y'all put on this armor. The church bears the armor and stands together. I fought this week for words to try to express that. Man, I wish I had the words to express that. Where everybody would go, oh my goodness. I wish I had the feeling or the passion for that, but maybe we can express it in a different way. This is the best I could come up with. Maybe we can experience it. I want you to do this with me. It's gonna be awkward for just a second. Not gonna have you say anything, but I want you just to stand up with me. Stand up if you will. And I know this is awkward when we do this, but go ahead and take a look around. Look in front of you and beside you and behind you. Look around. Say hello to somebody if you'd like to. I know it's awkward to look people in the eye. It's strange. But those people you are greeting, the people that you're looking around at, Guys, these, it's your brothers and sisters. And that's not just by name or title or some fancy holy word we give church. It is a truth that what you have in common with the people that you just looked at is greater than any other connection you have in the world. Far beyond any opinion or preference or party or choice, In here, you are standing together with those who are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And as you look around, go ahead and look around one more time for me. These are the people that help you and you help suit up in the armor of God. Now, y'all can be seated. I won't keep you standing long. So maybe what we have to do is read this passage and go, oh man, it's not just me armoring up every morning. It's I get to armor up with Ben and Anna at Life Group. Or I get to armor up when I watch Coach Cav's videos every morning and get fired up to go to work for the day. Or I get to armor up when I'm praying with Kelly about missions month, or I armor up when I'm fellowshipping through text or encouragement or going to men's Brenner or going to the next ladies event or whatever it is, we are helping each other stand together. And there's beauty in that, isn't there? It's a beautiful thing. So second, Paul doesn't only urge us to stand together. What he also urges us to do is stand together in this new reality. What he's saying to us is it matters where you stand. Four times he repeats that word in 10 through 20. Stand, stand. Now that you've done everything to stand, stand. (laughs) So it matters where we stand. 
And I believe what he's saying is stand in reality. Now, reality is what's actually true, right? Reality is what's actually true, and truth, by the same token, is what is actual reality. It's wild. It is wild, the world we live in, in which truth is so hard to accept. Truth is not something that's subjective. It is reality. And for Paul, what he says about truth, we found in chapter 421. What he said in 421 was this. He said, when you heard about Jesus Christ and were taught in him, not about him, notice this turn of phrase. He's talking about the truth in Jesus. When you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. He repeats it twice. That's a different turn of phrase. But you need to notice what he's saying is that Paul doesn't say the truth you learned about him as if Jesus is a problem to figure out or a set of facts to learn. But he says, reality is the truth that you find in him. In other words, I believe what Paul's saying is truth is not an idea that we learn as Christians. Truth is a person that we encounter as Christians. He's a person. Truth, capital T, is Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And so if you're following me, where we stand then matters. He's saying stand in the reality that you are already under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. That you have a different citizenship that you belong to a whole new kingdom, a whole new humanity. We align our hearts and our minds and our lives with that. And when we do, and we stand in that place, everything can change. Paul says this in a different place in Philippians 3.20. He says in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is now in heaven. He's not saying something about some future time. He's saying right here, right now. So that is the reality for the Christians. He also says in 427, he says, don't give the devil a foothold then. So you gotta think about where you stand, right? Am I standing with Jesus or am I standing in two worlds? Do I have one foot with Jesus on Sundays and one foot somewhere else? Do I have my heart aligned with Jesus in a moment or am I giving the devil a foothold in others? This is what he's getting at. The reality is, is you belong to Jesus here and now. So don't stand between two allegiances. Don't be allegiant to Jesus on Sunday and allegiant to the world the rest of the week. Because when you do that, chapter 427, that's when the devil gets your foot. He's speaking about Genesis 4, that the enemy is ready to pounce. You're going to capture your foot. It's incredible news. This is great news that we get to live in this new reality. And we learn to stand in the new reality and take a stand in the new reality. Then we get to do something that is totally freeing. And this is where the passage actually goes. Ephesians 6.12 for the next one here. We stand together and we stand in reality. But then he says this, when you stand in reality, you get to learn this. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, 
and against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. What a challenging statement of fact. That when we stand in reality, what we actually learn to stand for. When I stopped standing in two worlds, I learned that my stand is for people. And it's against the powers. What would happen if the church actually started to believe this? What would happen if we began to shape our lives around the reality of standing in Jesus means that another person, another flesh and blood person is never my enemy. That's the truth of this passage, that the real enemy is never another person. I'm gonna say it over and over. The real enemy, church family, is never another person. Paul says the enemy is the things behind that person, the powers, Week three, we talked about what the powers are. And the powers are those social and political and even economic forces that shape our lives and try to pull us out of the reality of living in Jesus. And Paul says those things are the enemy. So she or him, they may have hurt you with their words. You may be holding that grudge now for months or perhaps years because of what she or he said. But they are not the enemy. The enemy is that idea and philosophy behind our words that makes us believe that I only have value if I hold other people with less power than I have. If I push people down. He might feel like a lost cause to you. A person that would never change their habits or their beliefs or their life. But Paul would say that kind of person who's stuck in the way that they think or stuck in addiction is not the enemy. The enemy is the force behind a person that traps a person in addiction and habits and hangups. And maybe one to hit a little more home. They may seem like they're plain evil with their ideas about politics or abortion or their beliefs. Paul would say they, whoever your they is, is not the enemy. The real enemy is the force that gets us to believe as humans that isms are more important than kingdom. And we all think our isms and ideologies often are more important. Now, I'm not saying this morning that I believe the old adage of the devil made me do it. If you're hearing that, well, Jake just says that the devil's the enemy and we can't help what people do. That's not what I'm saying. We gotta give the devil a foothold For him to have power, we have to give him agency for power. But may we be the kind of people who stand for people and against the falsehoods that draw people away from Jesus. That's where we stand. It's not the person who is your enemy. It is the enemy who is your enemy. Capital E, the accuser. 
Because when we learn to actually stand in this place, you learn something beautiful about this armor of God, and that is that the armor of God actually stands for its enemies. You're probably going, I didn't read that in there. Hang with me for just a second. Paul uses this great analogy, right, of suiting up as a Christian. He writes the book, this letter of Ephesians, while he's on house arrest. He's sitting in a cell all day long or in a home and maybe in a dungeon from time to time. And as he sits there, he's getting to see the regalia, the armor every day. So definitely there is the Roman soldier uh, get up. The armor is at work here as an analogy. But also there's another layer at work that Paul has going here. He has another analogy in mind. He's actually working, and I told you all this at week one, Paul hardly ever says anything without the Old Testament in mind, and he's actually working on a different set of armor. He describes it maybe as you would hear a Roman soldier, but he is also describing an Old Testament set of armor that comes out of the book of Isaiah. An armor worn by the coming Messiah. Check these out. It actually shows up all over. Isaiah 11.5, it says about the Messiah, a root, this, this descendant of Jesse or David. It says righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. Later in the book, much later, Isaiah 59, which Isaiah isn't in any chronological order. It says this, the Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He's kind of... He's holding the people for their sins because they weren't seeking justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene, to do what was right. Nobody was standing in the right place. So his own arm achieved salvation for him and his own righteousness sustained him. Listen to this. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. Isaiah 52, 7 How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news and proclaim good tidings or peace and proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. And then finally, Isaiah 49, 2, it speaks of the Messiah and Isaiah is speaking on behalf of the Messiah here, saying, he made my mouth like a sharpened sword, the word of God. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. So Paul's not just working from this imagery of a Roman soldier as he sits there in prison. He's already had this in mind that when Jesus is revealed, he will wear armor. And now he's telling the early church, wear the armor that your Savior wears. Now this, this may not connect, but I'm going to try to make it connect because Isaiah culminates with an incredible passage about this Messiah. It culminates with this incredible idea of what's it look like when this Messiah puts on all the armor. And the culmination chapter, according to most scholars, is Isaiah 53. Surely he was crushed for our iniquities. Surely he bore our sins. Right? Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. 
So Jesus in Isaiah, as we know as, as Isaiah 53, and Jesus as we know through Isaiah, he suits up in this armor, and what's he do? He takes a stand for his enemies. He doesn't show up in the armor to conquer and kill and destroy. He doesn't take up arms. He takes up a cross. And Paul, through some really sneaky Old Testament language, is telling us when you armor up, yeah, he's using an analogy of a soldier, but he's really using the analogy of you'll look like the suffering servant because the church is at its best when it sacrifices for the world. And we always have been. Y'all with me on that? I'm unsure. (laughs) For me, that was... Because I've always thought about armor being something that I've got to wear in strength. But not in the upside down kingdom reality of Jesus. Armor is something I wear as a servant. To serve. So that the world can see a better way. So Franz Jägerstatter is an Austrian farmer that you probably have heard nothing about. His life was much of little significance. Nobody would have heard of him other than a few people wrote down his life story and then it got turned into a movie a few years ago in 2017 by Terrence Malick in a movie called A Hidden Life. And Franz's life was an incredible stance of standing for truth. Because as he lived in Austria, as Germany and Hitler were taking over the area, he as a Christian took the stance that nobody else around him would take. He got drafted into the German army. And although his neighbors and his friends were saying, perhaps you could just be a medic or perhaps you won't have to fire a weapon as a Christian, the one thing he wouldn't do would say, yes, that's fine, but he lived his life by saying, I will not take an oath to Hitler. And so this movie, A Hidden Life by Terrence Malick, explores what it's like what it's like to be a person who's so devoted to Jesus that you're not saving anyone. He wasn't saving Jews. He wasn't saving his countrymen. But you're so devoted to Jesus that you're gonna stand by Jesus just when your oath or when your beliefs only affect you. And I wanna show you a little scene out of this movie. It's a, it's a talk he has with, a, with an artist at the local church. Uh, in his town, and I want you to hear this talk because it describes what Franz Jägerstatter's life was all about, about where he was going to take a stand. Here it is. We can get these stage lights here, Brandon.
paint the tombs of the prophets. I help people look up from those pews and dream. They look up and they imagine that if they lived back in Christ's time, they wouldn't have done what the others did. They would have murdered those whom they now adore. I paint all this suffering, but I don't suffer myself. I make a living of it. What we do is just create sympathy. We create, we create admirers. Don't create followers. Christ's life is a demand. We don't want to be reminded of it. So we don't have to see what happens to the truth. Darker time is coming. And men will be more clever. They won't fight the truth. So just ignore it. I paint their comfortable Christ with a halo over his head. How can I show what I haven't lived? Someday I might have the courage to venture, not yet. Someday I'll I'll paint the true Christ. I don't know if you could understand that or followed that. I hope you did. But when we armor up and when we stand with Jesus, Jesus is not calling us to armor up as the world would see it, but to armor up as he did. Not to make a comfortable Christ, but to paint a picture of the real Christ. I don't know where you stand this morning. I watched that movie a few nights ago with my family. It was three hours long, and it is a burden to watch. <laughs> but as I watched it, I was reminded of a truth that is hard for me to accept. And I share that truth with you now. So a lot of us, unfortunately, have made a deal with Jesus that will follow him up to a point. I'll follow you so as long as I don't have to turn the other cheek. I'll follow you as long as so it doesn't make me uncomfortable. I'll follow you as long, Jesus, as though it doesn't 
means sacrifice. And I know it's super uncomfortable to even think about that or you'd even hear that from a pulpit. But Jesus didn't give us a point to follow him. He gave us a destination to follow him. And that was to the cross. Not to all awe and wonder at him on the cross, but to take it up as well. Because that is what the church does. We armor up together. We live in this strange new reality that is the kingdom of God. We learn to stand for people and against the powers of this world. And we learn to stand for people who we would consider our enemies. Maybe someday we can show the world again the true Christ. Maybe someday. I sure want it. If you need anything today, let's stand together and sing.